Welcome to Ministry Leaders Anonymous. A few weeks ago, Chris and Matt got tired of doing the intro because they did the same one for over 100 episodes, and they literally always messed it up. So they asked you, the listeners, to submit your own recordings of the intro, and good friend of the show, J.P. Quinn, decided to submit a few. So here's one of them. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Ministry Leaders Anonymous. My name is not Chris Bartlett, nor is it Matt Rice, but those two fine gentlemen are here to provide you with a moment of sanity during a busy week of ministry. They've both worked in ministry for over 20 years and have seen just about everything. As messed up as they are, they're ready to dive into and bring light to the hurts, hopes, and hungers that every ministry leader has. So without further ado, clap your virtual podcast hands for Chris and Matt. Today we were we are joined by Dr. Scott Cleveland. He's the director of Catholic Studies and the uh, associate or assistant director. I already messed it up of philosophy out at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. He's a husband, a father, and ministry leader out there seeking to build others into the apostolic age. He's here to discuss with us the book that we spent two podcast episodes on just recently, and that's from Christendom to the Apostolic Age. Welcome, Dr. Scott. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you both, Matt and Chris. It's funny to me. Um, it was actually a mistake of mine, I think, that led to having you on. Um, because in the original podcast, we said something like St. Mary's Press or something like that, just because it's such a similar name. I'm sure you guys deal with that all the time. And then someone emailed me, Emily emailed and said, just so you know, it's not St. Mary's Press. I'm like, oh, no. By the way, can we get someone from your university to hop on? And it actually yeah. worked. And so we're just so happy to have uh, have have you on. Tell us a little yeah. bit, yeah, about yourself and what it is you do. Because that that phrase that you said, um, you said Catholic studies is your college. Like, what is that? What is that? What does that do? Yeah, sure, great. Um, so yeah, I'm an adult convert to the faith and studied uh, philosophy for a PhD and came to teach at the University of Mary. And that's where I found out about Catholic studies and later became the director there. What Catholic Studies is seeking to do is uh, to promote, in some ways, the, the integrity of the university. What it's really after, it's an interdisciplinary search for truth, seeking to help students and faculty to unite the truths of faith and reason together, and then to live in light of that truth. So they're living integrated lives themselves. And part of, um, a key part of this formation is to help give them a Catholic vision of things, a way of seeing things and living and having relationships that's informed by that. So they're living winsome, integrated, joyful lives uh, that aren't fragmented or separated, which can ha sometimes happen in study where people take their faith on one side and their faith on the other. And so that, that as it, you guys know, fits with some of the themes of this book really well. And so I'm very excited to be here to talk about um, this with you. And one of, the, one of the things that I think neat about Catholic Studies at the University of Mary is that we're seeking this project that I just described in a lot of ways. We've got an undergraduate program it's a major and minor that we want people to second major in with some other primary major so that you've got a nurse or a business person or someone else combining this Catholic studies vision. So it's not just some kind of like theology program, as good as those are. It's really seeking to integrate people's lives. We also have a graduate program in faculty formation events and other things that help even the faculty to do the same. And so it's an exciting project to be a part of. And I'm glad to be here to talk a little bit more about this book and that project with you guys. Yeah, that's awesome. So I have a total nerd, you're a professor type of question. So uh, in regards to the apostolic age, uh, as I was reading through the book, I kind of thought, you know what, I think that uh, Vatican II, the council, uh, saw a number of these 
trends starting to lean away from Christendom. And so some of those documents and really even that council might have been either intentionally or inadvertently seeking to uh, almost as like a last effort to redeem or sustain the last remnants of Christendom. Mm. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on that, that, that theory <laughs> I, just, I just put out there? Yeah, okay, that's a good theory. I mean, it strikes me that there can be a couple different things going on. If, if there's a transition from Christendom to apostolic, and the church is noticing it. On the one hand, you could, you could seek to sort of preserve what you could of Christendom. And there could be some of that there here, right? Because what we might mean by Christendom might be when the, the principles, the moral and spiritual and, eth- and, and, and um, so, uh, principles of Christianity are somehow uh, informing uh, the institutions. And so those, that's a good thing for culture and for, for humans. And so the church can seek on the one hand to bolster it up but also recognizing that the larger movement is pivoting towards uh, a non-Christian culture or or a non-Christian way of viewing things that brings, you might say, what I like about the book is it says it's got lots of elements of Christianity in it, but they're organized in a way that's not fundamentally Christian because of a certain set of emphases. And so then I think the church is asking, how do we engage that uh, in a way that doesn't, it doesn't sacrifice the gospel, which also meets the world where it's at. So right. I don't know if that's addressing directly your question, but that's what, bring, what your question brings to mind for me. Yeah, and, and we see that in the sense that uh, it used to be even even European towns, the church was built at the center of the yeah. town and everything, the epicenter and everything flowed from it. And now, oh yeah, what what are you a part of? Oh, you know, I you know I have a Costco membership. I'm also a member over at the parish. I also yeah. my, my kids do soccer. And those are all seen as kind of equal playing field in regards to our sense of belonging. I have a gym membership. And honestly, there's some people that practice their fitness more than they practice their faith. Um, and it's more integrated, which is which is interesting. But it's also a good indicator of like, you might not be like, you might be a redneck if. You might be in the apostolic age if yeah. gym, memberships, gym memberships are more frequent than church memberships, you know. Yeah, uh, no, I think that's a good point. And you can see how... In an apostolic age, there isn't a clear sort of underlying assumption about an order of priority or value, right? Where everybody just assumes that that your church life comes before these other things. Now, now you're like you've almost got these; they're treated as equivalent. So I think that's a nice analysis, Chris. Before we started the show, you said something that really interested me about the book, um, because you said you didn't author the book or co-author the book, anything like that. The president of University of Mary did, right? Well, he's at least endorsing it. I think he's. I think he worked on it with others too. I think it's a okay. combination of folks working together. I think that's what he says in the preface. Okay. This is Monsignor Shea when we talk about the president Correct. of the university. Correct. Yeah, yeah, right. But the interesting thing to me, like based on what you said before the before we started recording, was you you said something to the effect of these are principles that are like inherent at University of Mary. Yeah, like right. we, we've been operating like this for a while, it sounds like. And all you did in a way was put it to text and maybe take the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. And I think that's right. I think that, uh, I mean, one of the ways that that comes out is in, um, in Catholic studies, we're seeking to form students who are seeking to engage and be apostolic witnesses in the world and not simply retreat and, um, and, and abandon the world, you might say. And I, and I think there's some tensions here, I mean, because there is something good about people coming to a place where they can receive the formation that they need 
to actually not be like lambs led to the slaughter when they go out yeah. to engage yeah. the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that uh, even one of the you know, points of the book is that it's harder to raise families. It's harder to educate students yep. uh, in a way that helps them to really be equipped to flourish as human beings, but also contribute to the life of the world through sharing the gospel. And so I think that that, that apostolic mindset is um, certainly part of what we do at the university. And I think that's why it, it's it's key for us to have you on here because I don't know there's there's something different about someone who has been operating within that mindset for a while rather than someone who just read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like yeah, it's just to, it's just a little more to the core, you yeah. know, of of who you are and how you operate. And I think it might be interesting for us to talk maybe a little bit about how those of us who are educated in a different way or with a different mindset or you know. A long time ago, <laughs> like the mm-hmm. last time, I mean, like, yeah, the last time I, I cracked open a, a theology book in a theology class was 16 years ago or 12, 12, 13 years ago. Um, and so that, um, Chris is laughing because I was actually reading an ecclesiology book last week, but <laughs> you're such a nerd, Matt. Yeah, you do on, on the side. Like it was a week ago. Yeah. But it's different in a classroom versus me. You know, Absolutely. Studying anyway. So those ministry leaders that have been out of formation for a while, what does that formation look like for your students, for your faculty? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if there's any like way to get a little bit more practical with regards to what you do and how you sure. form them, but it would yeah. be interesting for us to hear. So let me, let me focus on the interdisciplinary nature of Catholic studies for a minute. So some people in Catholic schools get a religion class or maybe a theology class. And they learn the basics of theology, and it's sort of its own little thing, and they learn about it, and they feel like they understand it, and then they move on. And the rest of their studies aren't integrated or connected to it. And so I think that what what they really need is they need to see how um, the history of the the church has developed historically, the church's contribution to culture, um, the traditions that have developed in the spiritual life. And they need to to get this picture of the church as this large, long-lasting institution that gives a whole way of engaging the world um, in producing art, in study, in all of these different areas, so that they have this kind of sense that they're part of something um, larger than themselves that touches on everything, uh, and that God wants us to sort of be able to understand and unite these things, just as he sees them all as a unity, right? And I think that what we want is we want our students to, to sort of recognize that their interest in art and beauty and entertainment or their interest in history or their interest in philosophical questions or their interest in scientific questions or their questions about how science and faith relate. All of these things are part of a larger project of understanding the world. And so I think that and developing a sort of and seeing how there's a Catholic vision to bring all these things together that involves uniting faith and reason. I, so I think that that's one of the goals that we want, what we have for the students is that they achieve that so that they're not putting their faith in a box in a certain respect or, or restricting it to just a purely theological venture. And I think that when they, their mind is opened in that way and they start to make all these connections, then it, it leads to them being able to make connections in their own lives. And then they're leaving more integrated, leading more integrated lives. Yeah. And I think like priests, RCA directors, religious education directors, youth ministers, whatever, could all take that mindset into it as well, is, yeah. is how is how is everything, like how, how, is, how are your subjects at school and all that stuff integrated? Mm-hmm. How is that all whole? But the beauty of it is that that integration leads them to be able to have a missionary approach to 
if they're a nurse or if they're a teacher or if they're a coach, if they're a homemaker, whatever it is, it puts them in a mentality to say, my faith is not just a Sunday thing. Yeah. My my degree in theology is not only for my position at the parish mm-hmm. and that, that full integration of humanity, faith, and education. Mm-hmm. And this is a random thought. It just popped into my head. Um, we always do like religious related things at the parish. Um, so like we like, for example, we'll hold a prayer night or we'll hold um, family things. And they're always focused on learning something specific about the faith. I wonder if it wouldn't be good um, or interesting, like just to try to integrate something else and have a math class. Like I don't know, yeah. like have some, yeah. some something that's not directly connected to the faith, but then show how it's connected. Yeah, um, something, mm-hmm. some way of integrating the the world with whatever, um, and it, you could have different professions pre- present. Um, and, and connect those professions to the faith and different things like that. I don't know, just some, something on a practical level that a parish could do to integrate like that. Uh, that may, math class may not work, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, math, math could work, but it's a little more challenging than something like history. Like, for example, you could have a physician who is historically well-read come and talk about um, the Catholic Church's contribution to the development of the hospital or something. And that, that would be a really interesting way for people to see how a certain vision of life has led to an institution that we all cherish. Mm-hmm. Um, or even you see the popularity of these, um, these sort of reading or discussion groups going up, like, you know, like something like Pints with Aquinas or people getting together and just talking about largely philosophical questions, but then in a way that's integrating their faith so that they're not simply, you might say, receiving uh, theological teaching, but they're actually integrating, or they're actually engaging their mind on questions that they care about. Uh, and I, I think that sort of thing is what you need for something to be growing and living. Um, I think that it's, I mean, there's a lot that people need to receive in order to be in a position to engage in that way, but that kind of engagement will enliven their faith. And I think you're right to think that we need to think outside the box in terms of how we, how we do ministry. I mean, even even a, a film discussion can be a really powerful way for people uh, to integrate their life and especially their entertainment interests with a Catholic vision of the human person and so on. Yeah, Bishop Barron did a great job with The Quiet Place on uh, mm-hmm. on that. This is a good example of that. Well, and it has to be something like we had a recent guest on, um, was it Matt Zimmerer? Is that right? Or Jason Zimmerer? Jason Zimmerer. Yeah, um, he was talking about finding the good and the beautiful in Jared. It's Jared Zimmerer. Well, we weren't planning on saying this, so sure. Um, but uh, like, but instead of because the typical Catholic way of looking at things is to say how wrong it is, like, oh, mm-hmm. we, like let's watch you know this show or whatever and point out how it's so wrong and how it doesn't fit with Catholic teaching or whatever. Um, but what what Jared was talking about is is find the beautiful in it, find the truth in it, because there is some semblance of truth, or there is something that is truthful in most things that is being aimed at, yeah. um, or a good that's being targeted, even if it misses the mark. And so we can highlight that and focus on that. Anyway, that's a. Can that's I make a, a comment side. on that really quick? Yeah, Please. I, I think that you're. Um, if you think about uh, one of the one of the questions that we're interested in is how do you engage people who have left the church, and I think that. You engage them in part by attracting them to something that they don't see as attractive at this point. 
And I think one of the advantages of focusing on the good or the true in something, even if there are other errors and mistakes and whatnot, is if they're attracted to something, what you want to be able to say to them is that you too find the things, the good things in it attractive so that you can have a meeting and, and a kind of, and they can see, oh yeah, you actually like what I like. You're attracted to what I like. Maybe I'm willing to listen to you more. Why is it that, and then you get in a deeper conversation and then you might be able to sort out, you know, this part was really good, but this part is problematic. Let's talk about it and so on. I think that the, the sort of, the default, it kind of depends on who you're dealing with, but the default position to criticize is more likely to push a person away because Amen. they're looking, because they don't think that, um, they think that there's something right about what they're attracted to. And so you have to, part of the goal, I think, in having a good relationship and being a good educator is to figure out what's the truth that they're really being drawn to and then sort of distinguish it from the error that's attached to it in their mind. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a big shift. Um, one Go thing that, uh, that the book, even the title of the book, proposes a, a, a perspective change. Mm -hmm. And you are actually leading a group of faculty through kind of a discussion of the book. And my, my question is, if there's someone that's new to the university or onboarding, and they're coming from a very uh, Christendom mindset, mm -hmm. like how do we get ministry leaders to not just hear what, what this book shares and be like, yes, that's so true. Oh my gosh. And then go back exactly to what they were doing two weeks ago, two years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, but to actually say, okay, this requires a perspective shift that affects everything. How do you seek to guide or what would you recommend in regards to guiding into that perspective shift? Yeah. So one of the things that can happen, uh, and I'm just thinking about some of the faculty formation I'm involved with, one of the things that can happen is that people um, can underestimate the degree to which the institutions of which they're a part will drift in their mission unless there's an active and concerted effort to preserve it in an apostolic age. Because the thing is, is that if you're in a Christendom age and the institution is built up by, or at least founded in some respects on Christian principles, that provides a certain solidity to the institution mm -hmm. and makes it less likely to drift. But if an institution is not as firmly founded on those things, or there's been a number of other principles that are at work in it, then even as an institution, there's a certain instability about it. And unless people take a very clear focus on mission and make it an active and regular part of how they think about what they're doing and how they communicate with the people they're serving, then you'll see a drift in line with the dominant principles underlying it, if that makes sense. And so I think then that one thing that ministry leaders want to keep in mind is, when, what are the sort of principles that are underlying or undergirding what the institutions are serving or, or the, that they're a part of? And are those things going to cause drift? And if so, be concentrated in, in sort of keeping things the course on. Uh, and, and not just assuming that because the institution is, was founded in a certain way in the past, uh, that it's just going to continue. So that would yeah. be one thing that comes to mind. There was, uh, there was a moment years ago when uh, I first started working with middle school youth ministers, which when I started in ministry, I would never touch. It was like, I, they terrified me. Um, but God called me to middle school for a reason. And, and I think it's like the, it, it is mission territory for youth ministry and, and we need to be active in that area. Anyway, um, what, what came up, what we noticed was we were making a ton of assumptions about what they knew about the faith based on probably yeah. based on what how it was when we grew up like we had heard all of the yeah. bible stories of daniel in the lion's den david and goliath the flood all these other stories we had heard um, and so we would use those stories oh like this and they had no idea what we were talking about 
And so then it was like, oh, great. Well, now we've got to go like take a step back, maybe 10 steps back to, yeah. to like change the way that we're educating because we were making way too many assumptions. And I think that's one of the things this book points out is we yeah. make way too many assumptions about the world we live in and we don't live in that world anymore. Yeah, I think that's just right. And that's confirmed by our experience. I know that the people uh, in theology who teach that I talk to will say, okay, so you know in Noah? And they're like, who's Noah? Exactly. You know? It's. Yeah. I think it's a, I mean, it's not for everybody. It depends on where they're coming from. But I, sure. I completely agree. I, so my own experience of the, uh, in education at the university level confirms that too, Matt. But there's, there's almost a bias that comes from working at a parish, right? Because the only people that are coming to a parish are people that have some sort of a Christian anchor that exists in their life, whether it be culturally or whether it be faith or whether it be um, consumer that they're coming for sacraments or something like that. But that very much makes you to see from your own perspective, from your own window of the world, that I live in a Christendom age. You can see everyone that's coming already has some sort of a connection to the church in some way, yeah. uh, but but that that's not a fair reflection of the overall society that that, that that we live in, and dare I say that we're called to serve. Yeah, and so our approaches have to go beyond just the the the, the people that are coming to us. We have to be able to figure out how do we go to them, and mm-hmm. and that's a hard challenge to think, and that's a perspective change, even for priests. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, you might be part of a parish that is. Uh, it's healthy <laughs> or part of an institution that, that, that is founded on Christian principles, but to then generalize to the larger age we live in being the same would be a mistake. So the book actually talks a little bit about priestly formation and, mm-hmm. uh, and how to, uh, even from that, how to, how to in- institute some changes in order to get people right. ready for this apostolic age that we're in. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, let's see. What chapter is that in? Chapter five, maybe, or four? Um, Yeah, so I think one of the things that it does is it says that in a Christendom age, there's, and this relates to family life too, there are all sorts of helps and aids in the formation of a young person that can be assumed so that when they go to, to be formed as a priest, there can be an assumption that they've had really good moral formation, really good human formation, uh, that they they've imbibed all of these things in a, in their family and in their larger in their and in their parish and so on that have put them at a certain level of maturity, and now what we need to do is take them from that level and get them to the next level so they can be an effective priest. The problem would be that if uh, they haven't actually received that because they're no longer their family life doesn't contribute in the same way, their larger culture or community of which they're part doesn't contribute in the same way, then all of a sudden they can get to the seminary level and they're actually immature in a number of ways. And so then the question is, if the priestly formation doesn't take that into account, then it's likely to, and just continues as a business as usual, then it's likely to have them go into the ministry with a lot of immaturities that will make them unequipped to actually be effective in their, I mean, they can obviously still celebrate the sacraments to be unaffected, but to be unaffected in all sorts of ways. And I think the same can be true of our own way of thinking about raising our children. Uh, and so, yeah, I think he said, he, there's a lot of concrete suggestions in that section where he talks about how they need a regular form of life that, that protects them and preserves them because there's right now a ton of autonomy in terms of how they structure that. And it, it can be easy to fall into modes of living that aren't actually helping them to, to fulfill their mission. 
Right. Yeah. So an, an example of this, back in sixth grade, a kid named Rocky, he got to be the class president. He didn't know anything about student council or anything like that. He just knew that he wanted to be a win, win an election. He was real competitive, so he wanted to win, mm-hmm. right? So he gave away the most candy, and the, the he who gives away the most candy gets the most votes, and he won. <laughs> and then he didn't know what to do as the as the class president. He had no idea how to be the sixth grade class president. And I think sometimes uh, in 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 some some situations, priests can actually go through the institutional church. Right. Mm-hmm. And and there can be a, a poverty in the spiritual realities of that. And then they're in a place where people are looking to them to pour into their own spiritual realities where they don't have any any reserves to give from or any formation to really be able to do that. But they do know how to go ahead with the, the institutional church and continue to check the boxes there. And yeah. uh, and, and, and that, that that's a dangerous thing. That's also, I think, maybe a shadow side of Christendom. The Christendom era, because the institutional church is so strong in Christendom, and uh, and, and, and things of that nature. Whereas in Apostolic Age, <laughs> rejection—it's a lot less attractive in the Apostolic Age. The church is a lot less attractive to the average person. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, he—I think the the authors even talk about the way in which in a Christendom age, the priestly life is an attractive career option. I mean, if yeah. you just think, I want a comfortable life. I think that's a nice thing to do, so I should do it. That's. That's a very different sort of mindset from somebody who thinks that God has called me to do this and this is my mission in life and I'm going to give myself completely to it. And when I do so, I'm going to be criticized. Yeah. Because that's that's where we are right now. Like like people who go right. to be the priests, like you're automatically you know, like generally seen at, like from the world as weird, as off, you know, as something yeah. wrong, as a pedophile. Like there's all these things that are against that. Um, and so it's totally different than in the Christendom age. And actually, Matt, that can I interrupt you for just a moment yeah, sure. on that? Because I think that one of the things that's key to attracting young men to the, the priestly vocation is that the priests that they see are healthy, mature, attractive uh, men uh, yep. who, who, who they could see. You know what? I know the world thinks that they're really weird, but I've met Father so-and-so, and I think he's great, and I yep. would like to be like that. And look at the yep. friendships he has with the other priests. I want to be a part of that community. Yeah. That sort of mindset, I think, because on the one hand, I think you're right. The priestly vocation is not going to attract just careerists in the same yep. way because it doesn't have the status. Yep. On the other hand, because it doesn't have that, some people will be turned off by it, but in a way that's mistaken because it's just mm-hmm. a weird thing. Why would I want to be part of that? Yep. And so that's why I'm, I'm suggesting this. And that's actually been um, one of the reasons that Bismarck, for example, where I live, has been very successful in generating vocations because they've been very healthy uh, young priests who've had great relationships with each other and have just shown young men that this is actually a possibility for them. So diocesan directors of formation should pay attention to this, and, and, or bishops, you know, because mm-hmm. getting a great director is not what's going to produce priests or vocations. Um, making sure your priests are healthy yes. is what's going to create vocations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like that. It seems like it should be obvious, but it's also probably really hard. Um, I think to make the some of the shifts. I want to yeah. go back a step, if you don't mind. Um, so we were talking about education. You know, we used to we started here, um, like in the Christmas age, you start here, and so you can get to here. I'm going to try to use some of the stuff in the background, right? Um, but <laughs> if we if we aren't starting here, does that mean that we end here? 
Yeah. Like if we have to start at a lower level to like, does that mean, cause it, let's just say you have four years, most priests have nine years of formation, but you have four years of formation. You now have to spend the first year like leveling that playing field or putting uh-huh. in the basics, working on maturity or whatever. Now you only have three years, you know, to educate um, in a different way. Um, so does that mean that we have to lower our standards in a way um, from yeah. the end goal? Because I think this I mean, affects ministry leaders across the board, not just yeah. academia. I, I think that I think that we see this in education, right? Students come into the university sometimes and they can't write, uh-huh. or their reading comprehension is low, and so we have to remediate them. And so the, what you can expect at the end is less. Now, if you have if you have a really well thought through educational curriculum, you can work against this. But I suspect that you're right that at the end of formation they might not be as far ahead. And so what you have to produce, I think, is a mindset of something like what educators call lifelong learning, but which mm-hmm. for priestly formation is going to be something like, my formation doesn't stop at seminary. I need to sort of actively be seeking to be formed in the course of my ministry. And then the bishop has to sort of, I think, help that in a variety of ways. And I think that that probably would be one way, at least in my opinion, that we need to have a bit of a mind shift. Well, and, and that mind, mindset shift to be healthy people, like specifically on the priesthood or whatever, healthy integrated priests or healthy integrated disciples like in, right. in a youth program or whatever right. is more important than the specific knowledge that they have because they can learn that later. Um, but I'm right. working on forming their the morality, their compass, different things like that. Um, and that's mo- more important than checking the box of yeah. having recited this part of the catechism. Yeah, I, th- I think that that is right. I mean, priests in particular have obligations to be in a position to, to teach what the church teaches. Um, but I think that, but even, even, that, even given that's true, and it is, uh, I think, the, uh, I think your, your point stands, and it's true for even us, right, laity. Uh, if, we, if we're sort of fairly well-formed, humanly speaking, we can engage with people and uh, they can find us sort of interesting or friendly or the kind of people that they would maybe like to have a beer with or have a meal with or spend some time with. And then that sort of relationship that we can form with them will be key to their beginning to sort of ask, hey, so what is it about your faith that you find so attractive and so on? I think that if we had all the answers, you might say, but no one was attracted to us in any way, then we'd never have an opportunity to give it to them. Yep. Yeah, and this helps us get a little bit practical. So practically speaking, I, I know that uh, we're running a little short on time, but the book itself is a huge perspective shift. Mm-hmm. How do we lean into that as ministry leaders? I mean, I'm curious to know maybe where you've seen, when you read the book, like an, a weakness like flashed before you'd be like, oh, wow, this thing needs attention. If you could give me something, maybe we could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I, I think people rely too heavily on programs as opposed to accompaniment. I think yeah. that, that the, the, the idea of uh, the road to Emmaus is a great model of ministry, um, mm-hmm. but everyone wants to do the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that one of the things that uh, is key to, say, Catholic studies, and I think it'll connect here, is faculty-student relationships. So that we have multiple extracurricular events a, a week to make sure that faculty and, and students are just spending time together talking about things and just having a relationship because, and I think that the same would be true in this case. If you're, I mean, you have to, if you're making an assumption that the people you're speaking to want to hear and are really hanging on your every word, 
and that's false, then you're wasting your time, right? <laughs> yep. you, you need, uh, I think people need to buy in to the value of what a person has to offer in a sermon. And they will do that, I think, when they come to think that that person loves them and knows them. And that usually comes about through uh, spending time with that person doing things they like. This is what St. John Bosco talks about, right? The, the, he's, he's talking about these young people and he says, you know, the priests and teachers are no longer playing baseball with them. What's, why, is that not, why is that not happening? Because, or, or something like that. Because basically he says they will, they will listen to you and follow you if they know you love them and they know you love them because you do things they love with them. <laughs> yep. And so I think that that maybe c- confirms your, what you're saying, Chris. I mean, I think I would agree with that. We need to do things. And that doesn't mean that it's just about fun. I mean, that's, that's too short-sighted, but it's more about developing the right kind of relationship with the person you're ministering to so that then you're in a position to form them both by teaching, but also in the human way we've been talking about. Right. Uh, this is, I just had a random thought because so much of this is on online, you know, and Chris and I are video game players. We played video games last night. We played Monday night with a whole bunch of youth ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something for me as a father that helps me bond with my son. Um, we we play video games um, together. We do things that he likes to do together, um, and so much of it isn't necessarily going out and playing baseball in the neighborhood like it might yeah. have used to have been. Sure. Um, but so then you run into, I think you run into a little bit of fear around um, safe environment stuff. Like, a, a, am I as a priest allowed to get on and play video games with kids, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever? Um, and I'm sure there's a way to do it safely, or maybe there's just not, you know, and mm-hmm. you just have to risk it, but I don't know if that's safe. I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but having a, like, I, I know there are different uh, communities or whatever that you can do online. I wonder how much fun it would be to have like a St. Joseph um, group on Xbox. And it's just this, like, what, is it, what are they called? It's like, because we have a Monday Night Gamers Night one, Chris. A Discord or group me or just you no, know, it's a it's a it's a group that people just are members of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. but you could do it and just hop on and play with different people from your church. Um, that would be fun, I think, and it'd be yeah. interesting. Anyway, I think, just a thought. I, I think the key is, you're what you're trying to do is build a relationship, but you have a larger vision for what you're doing it because it's yep. not gonna it's not gonna be effective if you just do fun things. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and so I think, and I think that. It's best when what they enjoy has within it uh, the seeds for formation and good discussion, yep. right? And so then, then, then a, a conversation can naturally arise from the material you're enjoying together, um, and rather than it being completely disconnected, sure. um, right? This is one of the reasons why literature, for example, is a really or reading a book or a story or a movie can be really great opportunities because they're both enjoyable. Often have um, the seeds for a great discussion or, or formation mm-hmm. or whatnot. Yeah, my my mind almost always goes to the shallow end of the pool, um, a, a good easy entry point, and yeah. then what's the next step? So okay. you have the online video game night, and then uh, like periodically you have a, a, a get together in real life, mm-hmm. um, and then you start to take that next step, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it's just. It, Interesting thoughts. Sorry, we're, we're over time for sure. We're way over time. I, I do want to just acknowledge a couple of pieces. One thing is, as ministry leaders, I want you to examine those who are ready to get set, sent forth into apostolic mission are very different and need different pastoral care than those who are out uh, in, in the world and have no understanding of who Jesus is. Now, both of them fall into our mission field, but we need to look 
at the uh, the context of of the individual and serve them according to their specific needs and their 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 desires, their hungers, and their potential to serve. Because I think sometimes the the church asks too little; she doesn't ask too much. And sometimes we forget that there are people who are ready, uh, really, to 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 be martyrs in the modern age for the sake of the kingdom. I think that that's one thing that this book got me emboldened to do is like get ready, wake up. It's not going to be easy, but this is the way that it can be effective. And I think all ministry leaders desire to be more effective. And so those are a couple of approaches to uh, to think. So Scott, what about you? Closing thoughts? It's been great to be with you guys. I really appreciate that that the book has sparked this in you and that I'm hoping that it helps contribute to the spread of the gospel in a more effective way. And so thanks for having me here. And uh, I appreciate the work you guys do. And God bless the work of your hands. Amen. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Let's continue this conversation online. Please send any feedback you have to mla at ablaze.us and share this podcast with someone. And here at Ministry Leaders Anonymous, we believe that if you want to go quickly, go alone. And if you want to go far, we go together. Take some time this week to pray for other ministry leaders and to examine the context in which you serve into the apostolic age. We will see you guys next week on Ministry Leaders Anonymous. God bless you.